Exodus 16, starting at verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by Omer, the one who had gathered much did not have too much, and the one who had gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord, has com the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake, and boil what you want to boil, 
save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded. And it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath unto to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you the bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was like it was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come, so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they, until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is a tenth of an ephah. Great teachers know that the best learning happens when students are stretched but not crushed by their education. And what is true in, in learning generally is certainly true in growing spiritually. If you're a Christian this morning, I wonder if you ask you the question, where in your Christian life do you think you have grown the most? In what seasons have you grown the most? And I think for most of us, we would say, although they were hard times, it was the times when we were going through the greatest challenges in all kinds of ways, when our faith grew greatest and most. This week, we're continuing our uh, walk with the Israelites through the wilderness. Um, and this is a season uh, in the scriptures uh, that Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon, described as God's university. And he called it that because whilst it was a hard season for the people of God, it was a season of great growth for the Lord's people. It was a time when they grew in their walk with God. And that was important. As we've been working through Exodus, we've, we've seen how God has been at work in the lives of his people, that they were there in Egypt in slavery to Pharaoh. And the Lord rescued them from Egypt. He, he brought them out by his mighty hands. And having been brought out of Pharaoh's grasp, uh, they are then carried, as it were. The Lord leads them and they come to the Red Sea. And what are they going to do? And the Lord parts the sea. They walk across as if, as it were, on dry land. And God protects them. He leads them in the wilderness. And as we think about where they're going, they're going to Canaan. That journey, ordinarily, 
would take just a matter of weeks, perhaps a month or two if they went really, really slowly, because it's just a few hundred miles. But instead, this journey from Egypt to Canaan takes 40 long years. Now just think about that for a moment. Uh, That's longer than some here this morning have lived. That's about as long as some of us here this morning have lived. And for most people, it will be about half of our lifetimes thereabouts. Why did it take so long? Why not get there in just a few weeks? Well, it wasn't that God misdirected them in that sense and they were lost. It wasn't that the Lord wasn't kind to them. Rather, God wanted to teach them and to train them so that they were ready when they came to Canaan to live there. Because one of the things we've seen is that there was a lot of growth needed in the people of God and that whilst they came out of Egypt fairly quickly... It took years to get Egypt out of their hearts, that they might serve the Lord and the Lord only. So God was taking this time to grow his people's faith. And as James explained two weeks ago, the big idea that we'll be picking up as we go through a number of these um, elements of the wilderness journeys from Egypt to Canaan, the big idea is that the God who saves his people tests his people to grow their faith in him. So God is working in all that he is bringing into the lives of his people to grow their faith and their trust in him as the great God of heaven. Which, if you think about it, having seen all they've seen in Egypt, having experienced those plagues, having been through that astonishing rescue, on one level we think, wow, they needed all of that. And yet another level we think... How kind is God with us as well in continuing to teach and to train us, to take us on those same kinds of wilderness journeys so that he might build our faith as well. And that's what we're going to see as we look at this morning. We're going to ask the question, how does God grow his people's faith? And we're going to see three ways in our passage in which God is working to build the faith of his people. And the first is that the wilderness stretches our faith. The wilderness stretches our faith. I read recently that adults having turned 30 begin to lose between 3 and 8% of their muscle mass every 10 years. Um, So having uh, passed that major milestone by now more than a decade, um, perhaps like me, you're beginning to feel something of the, the loss of strength that comes as you get a bit older. Now, I'm told... The answer is to uh, rebuild muscle through strength training. But it's true, isn't it, that just like muscle is built through strength and exertion, faith also is built in a similar way. Faith is like a muscle. Faith grows as it is challenged. And God uses the wilderness to stretch and to grow our faith. Well, let's see this pattern worked out in our, in our chapter, because actually what happens in chapter 16 is in some ways a repeat of what's happened generally in chapter 15. 
Because having been brought over the Red Sea by the power of God, having rejoiced and sung that amazing song of God's deliverance there in chapter 15, what did we see two weeks ago? Challenges came. And the challenge at the end of chapter 15 uh, was the lack of water uh, there at Marah. And then as we come to the start of chapter 16, we see the similar cycle worked out again. God's people, Israel, are at Elim. Now, if you look in your Bibles at the end of chapter 15 and verse 27, you'll see they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. There's a story told of a a Presbyterian minister uh, in Scotland who got so excited by this idea of the blessing and the abundance and the the greatness of of Elam, that he preached on this one verse for one and a half years. Uh, He preached no less than 12 sermons on each of the 12 springs of Elam. And I imagine somewhat stretched the patience of his congregation in doing so. But it is a place of great boundless provision. It is a place of great bliss and abundance. And on one level, you know, who would want to leave Elam? I wouldn't, would you? But of course, that's not the destination, is it? They're not called to live in Elam. They're called to travel and dwell in Canaan. And so Israel uh, sets out for the promised land. They leave Elam and they come into a desert of sin. Now they are halfway from Egypt to Sinai and they're one month into their exodus journey from Egypt. And the problem emerges, a repeated problem again that we have seen. So we've seen blessing and challenge in chapter 15 And now we see, in chapter 16, going from the blessing of Elim to further challenges. And the challenges that come uh, are, because of a lack of food, the people start to grumble. And the grumbling in chapter 16 is more serious than the grumbling in chapter 15. There are three ways in which it's more serious. First of all, there are more people grumbling. If you look down at verse 2, we read, In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. So there seems to be much more widespread grumbling at the lack of food. But then secondly, it's more pointed. Because whilst we read that the grumbling was against Moses and Aaron, it's very clear in verse 8 now that the grumbling is against the Lord. Moses says, you are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. So there's more people, it's more pointed, and there's more pressure. Because notice, it's not just about what they're going to drink, but, the, but the way, now it's about food. And the way they put it as the Israelites is a more pressurized call in that sense to Moses. Because if you look down at verse 3, they say to Moses, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So it's more pointed. Now, did they really have no food left? Well, if you look down in chapter 17 and verse 3, there's a reference to, at the end of the verse there, to livestock. So perhaps they did still have some livestock left, but maybe things were getting tight on the food. Then you might ask the question, well, are they being accurate in saying what they're saying about Egypt when they say that they had pots of meat and they had all the food they wanted? Well, We know that their experience was horrible in Egypt. But as far as we know from what the account is given, there is no rationing of food in Egypt. They were enslaved and worked horribly by the Egyptian slave masters. But as far as we know, they didn't have, as far as we can see, rationing. They had land, they had cattle. 
So they had good food, it seems, in Egypt. But the heart of the complaint that they bring against Moses and ultimately, remember, against the Lord is that they would rather die in Egypt when full than in the wilderness here they are right now. If we're going to die, we'd rather have died when we had full stomachs in Egypt, they say. Now, what is the sin struggle for the people of God here? What's the heart of what they're wrestling with? Well, the heart of the sin struggle is whether they are going to worship and trust God as their provider, or rather worship and trust in their own stores and provisions. Now, that wasn't a challenge at Elam, but it was a very real challenge in the wilderness. And notice there are two errors in their understanding here as the Israelites. First of all, as they think about the wilderness or the desert, they only see the wilderness as hostile and dangerous. Now, that would be true if they were just any nomadic people group moving millions of people across uh, the desert with animals and everything else. And if you were leading a people like that, you would not want to head into a desert wilderness. You would want to go to other places. And so the desert would be hostile and dangerous if they were just a nomadic people in that sense. But not if the God of heaven is with them. Not if the Lord is with them. This is the God who has sent plagues down on the Egyptians. This is the God who has brought them up out of Egypt. This is the God who has parted the Red Sea. This is the God who has provided water at Mara. So if they lacked, they should have prayed and trusted God's provision. And that, friends, is how faith grows. In the times of the wilderness, we pray And we trust that God will provide according to his good and perfect ways. As we go through the desert, in that spiritual sense, and maybe in other practical ways in our lives, there are things that are dangerous. Our lives do have hard things. It is right that we weep in times of suffering. But alongside all of that that is right and appropriate that we do, we must not forget that the wilderness at times is God's university. It is how God trains faith. And what will protect us from grumbling like the Israelites here, what will move us to pray is to trust the Lord. And we can do that if we Avoid the second error of the Israelites here. So the first error was that they saw the desert only as hostile and dangerous. But the second error is that they reasoned from their circumstances to God's character. Now that is so common in the scriptures as you watch the people of God. And if we're honest about our own hearts, and I'm honest about mine, that is so common in our experiences and not as well that we reason from our circumstances about what that means about God's character. And the Bible says never do that. They think, verse 3, that God has brought them into the wilderness to die. Is that true? It's not true. It implies that the Lord lied to them in Egypt, because what did he say? He said, I'm going to take you home. It implies that rather than being for them, he now loathes them 
And it implies that rather than being their protector and provider, he is going to be the one who is going to bring their lives to an end in that moment, at that time. But of course, that path of reasoning to go from circumstances to the character of God is well signposted by Satan. And friends, we need to know that that is a route not to go down. And when you see that signpost emerging in your mind saying, that's a way to reason, say, no, it's not. This is not how I understand the character of God. I understand the character of God from his word, from his revealed will. And I trust what his word says in the knowledge that all God says is true. And in all the uncertainties and in all the sadness and in all the tears, he will watch out for me. He will care for me. And when I come to heaven, none of us will say, Lord, you were not good. You were not kind. That is our confidence. And so in this struggle, what do we do? We bring our circumstances before our God, whom we know has a character as revealed in his word. So rather than going circumstances to reason about God's character, we read our circumstances through God's character. We use what we know about the character of God and apply it to our circumstances. And so we weep, we cry out, we call to him, and we trust that he will answer according to his good and perfect will. So friends, can I encourage you to be clear on God's purpose in the wilderness. And be clear on that before you go through a time of wilderness desert. One of the things that mature Christians said to me and to Naomi as we were growing in our faith, and we were younger in our faith, I should say, and we recognized that we heard this a lot, and it was such a kindness of the Lord that people taught us this. They said, get ready for the wilderness, and know how you will walk through it, trusting God's character. Can I encourage you to do that? Whether you're in it, whether it may be before you, trust the character of God. He knows you. He is training your faith. He never intends to break your faith. He is growing it. First point. Second point, as we think about the wilderness and and God's training here, whilst the wilderness stretches our faith... God does something else to help us through those hard times. And it's our second point, that God's goodness strengthens our faith. God's goodness strengthens our faith. God responds to Israel's grumbling with astonishing kindness. Isn't it wonderful to see this? Well, how hopeful it is to see the way in which God responds to the Israelites here. Because look down at verse 4. Having come before Moses, repeated the pattern they have gone through already in the last month of problem and grumbling. What does God say? Verse 4. The Lord says to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. (laughs) Now, I wonder when Moses heard that and the Israelites heard that, perhaps they wondered what did that mean? (laughs) But it didn't take them long to know. Because it actually meant exactly what God said. God was going to rain down bread from heaven. Every day he was going to provide from his goodness bread. And it is the goodness of God that we're going to see in a number of ways here in the passage that, that grounds and strengthens our faith. And where do we see it? Well, let me suggest three ways we see God's goodness. We see God's goodness in this feast that they had that very evening. 
So it seems on the very day in which they came and they grumbled before God, what does God promise? Look at verse 8. He says, um, You will know that I am the Lord, that it was the Lord, when he gives you meat in the evening. So God says, that very evening, I'm going to bring meat for you. And if you look at verse 13, you sign that God fulfills it because that evening, quail came and covered the camp. So there's this amazing provision of quail on that very evening. Now, that seems to be a single occasion. Quail uh, was a great delicacy back then. And it was known that the quail birds would migrate over the Sinai Peninsula. And they would get so tired, having flown all day, that they would land at night, and they would be very tired. And the Egyptians, knowing that, at times would throw nets over the quail to capture some of them. So some people want to say, well, all that's happened here is they happen to have come across a large uh, flock of migrating quail. But it's a miracle, friends, when you start to think about what's going on. Because it's in just the right place where the Israelites are. On the very same day in which they grumble, they have this quail. It's exactly at the right time when God says it will come at evening. It's in exactly the right quantity so that all of them are fed. It is a miracle, isn't it? Of God's goodness. A miracle of an amazing feast. But then also notice, alongside that one-time evening meal, it seems, God provides delicious bread every day. So if you look at verse 4 and verse 8, the Lord says in the middle of verse 4, the people are to go out. I will rain down bread from heaven to you and the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. Same, similar thing said in verse 8 and if you jump down to verses 14 and 15, we read, when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was, but Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. And if you want to know what this bread was like, jump down to verse 31, and we read that the people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. There's always enough for them every morning when they go out to look. Whatever the weather, wherever they are, only among the people of Israel, not the other nations, God provides this delicious bread every day. And in the ancient Near East, honey was the perfect sweetener. It was a rare delicacy to come across it. If you found a beehive, you would carefully uh, try to extract some honey from it because it was such a great treat. But this is not just normal bread, of course. This is bread Flavor, flavored with honey, tasting like honey. Now, I don't know about you, that really struck me, because the last, when I ever think about the manna in the wilderness, I think it might have been quite boring food. I mean, I love bread, but, but bread every day? But it's not just ordinary bread, is it? It is bread that was tasted like wafers made with honey. So it's special stuff. It's a bit like baklava. If you like baklava, this is a bit like baklava, perhaps, Every day. And you might say it was a miracle that they um, stayed healthy weight um, in the wilderness, having such a great delicacy each morning to eat. But we might say this is a heavenly staple. A heavenly staple. And it satisfies them in the wilderness for 40 years. Friends, isn't it great to see that God's provisions are generous and they go beyond just mere survival rations? 
You know, in Egypt, they had pots of meat to eat, but now they have the best meat with the quail, and they have sweet bread. And doesn't that remind us of how the Lord delights to provide abundantly for his own? He did that in Eden, gave them that lush paradise for Adam and Eve. He did that with the patriarchs, and he does that for us today in the Lord Jesus Christ. God delights to provide for his own. So we're seeing God's goodness in the feast at the evening. We're seeing God's goodness in a delicious bread, but also we see God's goodness in a sight of God's glory because the Lord confirms his continued presence with them with the promise in verse 7 that they will see the glory of the Lord and the fulfillment in verse 10 when the glory of the Lord uh, there appears in the cloud. So if you're into um, interesting word to look up. This is a theophanic glory cloud that there comes upon the Israelites in the wilderness. And what is it there for? It's there to signpost God's presence. God is saying, I am with you even in the desert. And isn't it true that God shows us more of himself as we depend upon him for his provision? You know, sometimes we say, I I wish um, I could know more of God. I wish I could experience more of God in that sense. Well, one of the ways we can do that, friends, is we trust him in our wilderness situations and with our wilderness needs. And as he provides, we see more of his glory. God's goodness strengthens faith even when our faith feels weak. That's really important because sometimes as we think about what it means to live the Christian life, we can think it's all about the strength of my faith. It's not. It's all about the greatness of your God. A little faith in a great God. That is what we need, friends. If a house has subsidence, That happens because the ground is giving away somewhere around the foundations of the house. And the the, the ground, the soil, whatever there's underneath, is is giving away. It's not supporting the house. And so what do you see in a house of subsidence? Well, you see cracks, you see movement, signs of movement. You could even see some of the house starting to disappear. And if you have a house that has subsidence and you call in engineers and contractors to help you with it, what they will do, I understand, or one of the things they can do, is something called underpinning, where they excavate the soil or whatever it was that was giving way, and then they pour concrete under where that soil was. And then once the concrete is set, what does that do? It gives strength to the house because it has a solid foundation. God's superabounding goodness is like that for our faith. It is not about the strength of your faith. It is about the strength of your foundation. And your faith rests on the goodness of God. Ground your spiritual life there, friends. So we've seen The wilderness stretches our faith. We have seen God's goodness strengthens our faith. And then thirdly and finally, we see that God's commandments grow our faith. Now here I want us to reflect upon the relationship between the commandments of God 
and his provision and the way in which that builds the faith of God's people. That's what we're going to try and get into here. Now, I don't know about you, but has it ever occurred to you, it's only occurred to me in looking at this passage this week, that God could have provided for his people with a massive supply drop once a month. Yeah, so, so from, in a miraculous way, God could have just given them a month's worth of food all in one go, however he chose to. And they could have collected it all up, stored it in containers, whatever they had. They must have had some coming out of Egypt because they've had some food that way. And then every day they could have eaten just enough so that after 30 days they had enough left. God didn't do that. However much the Israelites might have preferred that, I certainly would have done. Why not? Because God each day wanted to teach ongoing dependence. And so the Lord provides each day. The Lord calls them to trust each day. And in doing that, he builds their faith. Let's see that worked out. First of all, we see that worked out in the shelf life, we might say, of the manna. Because the shelf life is just one day. I don't know, someone tell me a food afterwards that has a shelf life of a day. But there aren't many, are there? Maybe uh, name me cinnamon rolls. But uh, there aren't many foods that last just one day. But what must they must do? Well, they must go out and they must, um, they must eat it, or gather it and eat it on the day and not leave any of it until the morning. Because if they leave it until the morning and try and keep it for an extra day, they find that there will be maggots and bad smells there in the manor. That's what it says. Um, and they must eat all of it. So they must go to sleep having consumed all the manna and eaten it then, and then trust God that the next morning there will be manna for them to gather that God has provided. And do you see how that helps build their faith? Because all the kind of questions you might ask, well, well what if God's going to forget? Well, that's ultimately doubting God's character in that, aren't we, if we ask that question? <laughs> and he won't, and he builds faith. Well, what if there's never going to be enough? might be perhaps doubting God's wisdom and his provision in that sense, but that's not going to happen because there's always enough. So that daily provision of the manna taught ongoing trust and dependence and obedience. And there's so many great stories of this, but if you know anything of the life of George Muller, the man behind the, um, along with others, around, behind the Bristol orphanages, you'll know that he was a great man of faith. And that that faith of Muller was built up through many years of deliberate, prayerful dependence upon God. There's a lovely story of one morning uh, when there was no food for the staff or the children. And so he gathered the staff together from the, the orphanage and he said, we need to pray that God will provide food. And they prayed the Lord would provide food. And a short while having stopped prayed, they heard a knock on the door. And outside there's a milkman with his milk carts and the wheel is broken and it's full of fresh milk. And he says, I've just got all this milk. It's going, to go, it's going to go bad if we do nothing. Could you use it? Yes, they could. And a baker knocks on the door and says, I, I just felt moved to bake you bread for all of your children today. So God responds, providing milk and bread, demonstrating his provision there for Muller and all the children in the orphanage. Now, we don't live on manna each day, but we still depend upon God for life and everything, don't we, friends? And whatever the challenges of the day, 
We are commanded to trust God for them and then to look to him to provide. So friends, will you trust him for everything? Will you trust him for your material needs? For your financial needs? Will you trust him for your job? For your degree? For your exams at school? Will you trust him with your children? Will you trust him in illness? Trust him, friends, with all of it. Because God builds faith as we look to him. But we also see God teaching Israelites to trust and obey in this command to rest on the Sabbath and the provision before the Sabbath. Because God provides manna in the wilderness there on five days, five mornings, he provides one day's worth of manna. On the sixth day, he provides a double portion of the manna. Now, we're just seeing miracle after miracle here, aren't we? Because we've had the miracle of the quail, we've had the miracle of the daily manna, but now we have the miracle of the sixth day manna. Because what happens there? God's got to provide a double portion. He's got to increase what's available in that sense. And the manna that's gathered on the sixth day, they're going to eat some of it on the sixth day, but then they are going to store enough for the seventh day and keep it overnight. But what happens when they go open it up on the Sunday? Well, what have they, what have they experienced Monday through Saturday if they've kept any? Maggots and bad smells. But they open the container, and what do they find on the Sabbath day morning? The man is still fresh. It's a miracle again, isn't it? And not only that, there is no new manner on the floor. So those that go out on the seventh day find there's no manner on the floor. Again, another miracle. God demonstrating his power, giving reasons to trust him, but also in giving them a command to obey. And the command is, gather the double portion on the sixth day. Trust me, it will be okay on the seventh day, the half that you keep back. And do not go out together on the seventh Now notice a few things about the principle here of the Sabbath rest. Now we're going to talk about that as we come to Exodus 20 in weeks to come, but just notice a few things here at this point. That the Sabbath rest, the seventh day rest, is assumed by the Lord when the Lord does this. So if you look down at verse 7, sorry, no, it's not 7. I've got the wrong reference here, hang on. If you look down at verse 5, you'll read that on the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that, it, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And then as you go on, as explained later on in the passage, the principle of working for six days and resting on the seventh day is assumed both in God's provision and his command to the people. The command is stated again, but the principle is assumed. So the people knew what it was. They don't need an explanation in verse 5. And that shows us that the Sabbath day rest, the one in seven rest, was not only there in the Ten Commandments as found in Exodus 20, but was also a principle there in creation. That God created in the six days and rested on the seventh day, and his people understood it as a creation ordinance, a creation principle that God has established for all time. So there are some who want to say that the Sabbath is something introduced to Exodus 20. But that's not what's going on here, is it? 
in the text, we have in Exodus 16, the seventh day being practiced, assumed, and commanded. That rest in that sense. So it's not there for a period of time, just under the Mosaic covenant, as some want to say. And it doesn't come to an end when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, who is our Sabbath rest, in the sense that we rest in him and we rejoice in all the rest that comes in him as the end of our our need to strive to be right with God. We find rest in Christ by faith alone. But because the Sabbath also points to heaven, we need that reminder of heaven that is to come. So there is a principle here that's being worked out in Exodus 16 that has come from creation that will be stated again in Exodus 20 and is something God establishes for all people for all time and calls his people to keep. And it's also important to notice, friends, that um, in verse 20, the Sabbath there is a gift. I wonder how you think about the Lord's Day. Do you think of it as a gift from God, or do you think of it as a toil to wait out? Well, look at verse 20 and see, sorry, verse 29, and see that we read there that the Lord says, I have given you the Sabbath. Bear in mind, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, and it's given, verse 30, so that they might rest. It's a blessing. It's for their good. And as we work through the Ten Commandments, we'll see all the ways in which it is a blessing. But friends, do we not need this blessing of rest more than ever today? In a world that is go, 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 God has commanded us to trust him and to stop from all that go, go, go. To put our daily work to one side, whatever it might be. Our homework, our revision, our emails, the demands of daily life, to to put it to one side, not in a in a legalistic way, but in a way that that rejoices that we don't have to do those things on this day. That we can fill our hearts and our minds with God, that we are made for more than that. We are made to rest. We are made to worship. We are made for fellowship with our God, to enjoy him. Friends, God has given you a day to rejoice in that. That you might do that every day, and especially on the Lord's day. Coming back to the main point, do you see here the connection between faith and commandment? God, God's commandments grow our faith. Now, there are some relationships uh, in nature which are described as a symbiotic relationship where there is one animal and another animal and they live in some kind of a, a system together in a way that is mutually beneficial. So, good example is apparently ox peckers who feed on the parasites that plague large animals. And the ox peckers get a good meal. The large animals don't have to scratch and deal with the parasites themselves. So, it's a symbiotic relationship. One feeds into the other. And there are ways here we're going to see in this passage that f- trusting God and obeying God are like that. We trust and we obey, and they connect together. And we need to be really clear about this. So please don't mishear me. In coming to faith and coming to be right with God, so eternity is settled, I'm forgiven, that is entirely by faith. I do not trust in any doing 
to be right with God. It's all of faith. But in my growth, in my faith as a believer, having come to faith, God does use obedience and his commandments to grow my faith. Because obedience requires faith, and as we obey, that builds our faith. So there's a connection between the two. And as we, as we trust God, we obey God. And then as we obey God, we grow in our trust of God. And you see the connection that builds there. And so in that way, <clears throat> obedience is part of how God builds that muscle of faith. And faith shrinks and shrivels when we fail to obey. Now, in this passage, some of the Israelites failed to obey God's commandments. They gathered too much on a normal day. They tried to keep it for the following day, and it was bad. Some went out on the Sabbath and disobeyed God's commandment, and they found nothing there. And that reminds us that for the believer, obedience grieves the Lord. Sorry, disobedience grieves the Lord, and it it chokes our faith, doesn't it? When we see that we have been disobeying the Lord, and when we repent and come back to him, what do we find, friends? Well, we go back to remember what we saw in the middle point. And we go back and we remember that our God is good. Our God is kind. Our God is gracious. And as we return to him in repentance, he is a God who forgives. Praise God. And as we close, how we're going to come into this more next week, but how thankful we can be that we have a God who has provided for us in ways so much better than even wonderful quail and the heavenly bread of manna, that sweet bread. Because we have a God who has provided for us, for those who have faith, the bread of life that comes down from heaven so that we may never go hungry, so that we may never be thirsty. And of course, that bread is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 6, The Lord Jesus, uh, having performed an amazing miracle at the start of John chapter 6 of feeding 5,000 people with bread and fish. What does he do? Well, having demonstrated that he is the same Lord who did that for Israel in the wilderness, this is the Lord who has come to dwell with his people. But he has come to do even more because we read in John chapter 6, verses 32 to 35. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us always this bread, this heavenly bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Amen.